Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Sasha Engel, author of Breaking the Alphabet and the recently released Planned Anarchy. Sasha, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm uh, Firstly, I want to say thanks for coming on. You and I have been corresponding for a little while now, and we've been published in Oak alongside each other, which is really cool. Um, so I just want to say it's really nice that we can collaborate more directly in this way. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So let's let's get right into it. So I'll say it like this. Who is Sasha? How did you get to this kind of, you know, what some people are going to see as a kooky, like break the alphabet, new languages. What are we what are we talking about? So how did you get to this point? Kooky is right. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. Um, well, who is Sasha? I I got into anarchism, I, I suppose, like most people did uh, when I was about 18-ish, something along those lines, you know, as a sort of a, a thing where I started out as a liberal, then I became a libertarian, which uh, I, I was born and raised in Germany, so that's kind of unusual. Um, I was reading a lot of sort of right-wing libertarian American stuff at the time, individualist stuff at the time. Then I discovered Max Stirner and egoism, and that sort of that sort of set me on the um, the the slope, if you will, toward uh, thinking about the world in in this really radical individualist way, um, where sort of the the sort of fundamental assumption is that everything outside of me ultimately has tyrannical aspects, and so that mm. sort of that sort of informed. Uh, the way I, I look at the world ever since. Um, I did go to um, grad school in the US. I was in the US for, for five years. And during that time, I was more of a Marxist. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I'm doing um, when, when it comes to sort of more economics related things or machines or what have you, the way I look at that sort of stuff was for the longest time was inspired by by Marxist approaches. And I used to always glibly talk about the revolution like you're supposed to do, I suppose. And mm. um, um, and then the pandemic hit. And like, just as it was for everyone else, I suspect that was sort of a very profound thing to me. And I remember one day um, here, I was living in, in Ireland at the time. I still do. Um, I was in Ireland for three years before the pandemic started. And um, I remember when the pandemic started and they started doing this thing where you have to be in this bubble where you can't be further than five kilometers away from where you live for, uh, at, at the very beginning uh, when nobody really knew what this thing was. And I remember this sort of really set me back on the path to to egoism. And I never I never really got to the point where I, you know, had any particular opinion on on COVID itself, but I do remember thinking that this is a ridiculous imposition, regardless of what the situation is. Um, and that really, it really made me mad on a sort of emotional level. And that really prompted my return, if you will, to to the circle A. Um, and so sort of in this existential way. And so that's when that's when I started really getting into um, really getting back into individualism and um you know, I had been reading primitive primitivist stuff um, for a couple of years. I think I, I started reading it when I was 18 as well. But really, um, the the combination of the two really sort of occurred to me at that point. And I think that a lot of what I what I do and a lot of what I write is in the intersection between those two. 
Um, and it's sort of this, this overlap between the two most radical ways of shaking off, um, you know, civilization, sort of to use that as a shorthand, um, the most radical way of shaking off the way that our bodies and minds are overdetermined by factors that are ultimately tyrannical, ultimately outside of our control. Um, and that, that sort of, that really brings me, brought me to um, contemplating the kooky things, as you said, and contemplating the various things that went into breaking the alphabet and plant anarchy. Um, and that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, there's still, there's still this sort of, this sort of overlap um, between the primitivist impulse, the individualist impulse. That's really, really where I'm coming from at this point. Okay. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Probably a lot of people can relate. Uh, I know I had that liberal to liberal or to conservative libertarian esque, right? Like right wing libertarian arc. Like I had a very similar uh, development. Uh, and I, I wonder what mine would have been like had I been a little bit younger when COVID hit. Because I can see how yeah. COVID like either pushed you really far into, I you know, left wing or post left radicalism, or but it could also like do the opposite and push people to like far right radicalism. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of um, sort of thing. Like there's there's a bit of an overlap, and I, you know I don't want to really get too much into into this sort of thing either because like there's a lot of questions that a lot of people feel really strongly about, but that mm -hmm. sort of you know, questions about science and what have you that I'm really not, I really don't feel like I have much to say on, but I feel like there's one, there's definitely one overlap that you're, you're dead right where um, the sort of assertion of the individual versus the state or versus abstract control uh, versus norms versus morality and so on and so forth. Like, I feel like you're right. I feel like there's a lot of galvanization um, in that regard, and it it threw a lot of people out of whack. Like I know, I know a lot of people that I knew before the pandemic that I was on relatively good terms with. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that we parted ways, but we're definitely not talking as much as we used to. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get into some of the ideas we're talking about here. So with breaking the alphabet and plant anarchy, what is the the underlying motive for these two words obviously they're deeply related if it's fair to say plant anarchy is the development upon what the booklet uh, breaking the alphabet was trying to say so what is what is your goal with those two words yeah definitely definitely an expansion yeah i feel like breaking the alphabet sort of made one of the points that i wanted to make and then plant anarchy really expands on the various excuse me really expands on the various aspects of it um, the background and 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 all that sort of thing. The underlying, like the really fundamental underlying assumption is that if you were, if we were to look at the world as it was, um, say prior to humans or prior to even prior to animals, if you will, but mostly prior to humans, it's um what you would see is not necessarily individual things like individual trees, individual blades of grass, individual shrubs, or even individual animals. But what you would see is what I call the continuous unfolding, which is um, this sort of idea that you're not looking at a cloud that drops a uh, droplet of water onto a plant leaf, but rather you're looking at a circle or a cycle 
where it's vaporization, then cloud, cloud becomes droplet, droplet becomes groundwater, groundwater becomes root, root becomes stem, stem becomes leaf, leaf becomes vaporization, and then it goes back and, you know, round and round sort of um, in, a, in a sort of endless um, cycle. And that cycle is interlocked with other cycles where roots are intertwined and you never really know where one plant ends and another begins. And the groundwater connects all of them. The, the rivers connect them to the seas. The seas connect them to the clouds and so on and so forth. And so there's this fundamental vision, um, which is a bit of an intuitive insight, I suppose. That is a fundamental, it's a fundamental vision that I refer to as a continuous unfolding. And if you're if you look at the way that animals interact with with the world, they're not interacting with individual trees or individual shrubs or individual grades of glass, bl blades of blades of grass either. Um, they're interacting with the continuous unfolding and they're unfolding continuously within it as well, right? So you don't have an animal eating a blade of grass and then pooping it back out, but rather you have a continuous cycle where it's always more than one animal and it's always, you know, there's, there's, it's always a cycle of movements, right? Grazing, um, uh, digesting, pooping, becoming plant, then grazing again, then digesting again, and so on and so forth. And again, all of those, those grazing cycles are again all connected with the clouds and the seas and the oceans, the air, and so on and so forth. And then you add predators to the mix and you get the same thing. The cycles are still there, but they're just getting longer because then you have um, digestion upon digestion, uh, pooping upon pooping and all that good stuff. And so you end up with uh, cycles that are getting ever longer, cycles that are getting ever more expanded, but all of them are still continuously within the generalized unfolding of the world. And I use the, the term unfolding here because I don't think that any of our current scientific terms for this is sufficient. Like if you were to describe it as an ecosystem, that implies management and it implies that there's a direction to it. It implies that right. there's sort of a mathematical, a possibility of a mathematical description to it and so on and so forth. It's almost like there's a level of implied logic to it. Yeah. Right. That there's yeah, a exactly. and you know that I was actually having a conversation with a coworker about this. We both work in I'll just I'll, I'll put it very broadly with an environmental kind of work. It's my summer job when I'm not teaching. Um nice. and we had this interesting conversation on the car ride. Um that I think a lot of the reason like creationists like evolutionary you know like or like religious creationists don't understand evolution is the way people purport it is it's a logical thing that nature is doing to reach an end goal mm -hmm. right and i think that they're like well if you believe that then why don't you believe in god because i mean they're essentially describing the same thing essentially yep. absolutely yeah so, progress is just a secular version of of religious fulfillment you know like whether mm -hmm. at the end of times you atone or at the end of times you like it's the hegelian thing you know whether at the end of times you you end up in a sort of a steady spiritual state or a steady material state doesn't matter in both cases it, there's salvation at the end right um, right but yeah so the 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 once you once you look at the world in that way once you look at it as a sort of what i call the continuous unfolding the problem then becomes how is it possible that human beings 
and I, I don't mean to say that human beings do this in any way deliberately, but this is this is sort of just something that we do um, in as much as we are rational human beings, developed human beings, civilized human beings, whichever of the adjectives you want to you want to use. Mm-hmm. How is it that those of us who are quote unquote civilized look at the world as though it was discrete things, you know, like discrete in the mathematical sense. So you have one thing here and another thing there and the third thing over there, um, which is completely distinct. The first thing is completely distinct from the second thing. This tree is something completely different from the shrub. The shrub is completely different from the river. The river is completely different from the, the ocean and so on and so forth. How is it that we do this? And how is it that the machines that we create get to devour the world as though it was a pile of things that is readily readily to hand, that is readily for our grasp? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the that's where the idea comes in that I talk about a little bit at the beginning of breaking the alphabet, um, but then a lot more in, in plant anarchy. That's where the idea comes in that this this world of things, this world that is a pile of things, is really just written into the continuous unfolding by civilized human beings. And mm-hmm. when I say when I say written, and this is this is probably where breaking the alphabet is a little less um, developed than plant anarchy is. Um, when I say written, I mean this in in a in a double sense. Like on the one hand, you have the the term writing in the conventional sense, where you can like it's fairly obvious that if you label something, if you call it a tree, then it is a tree. And if you write right. as though it was a tree, then it is a tree. But mm-hmm. before we before we do this on the linguistic level, we do this on the gestural level. Um, so our bodies do this, our behaviors do this, um, as though we behave in the world as though it was a pile of things that are ready for our grasp. You know, we we step on things and we we run over things and we kill things with impunity, which is which you would have to distinguish or which I try to distinguish between killing things as a sort of a, a way of life, as a sort of part of the, of the continuous unfolding like predator animals do and killing things in the way that we have compartmentalized them, cut them out of the continuous unfolding and turn them into a specific thing before killing them. So mm-hmm. the, assertion, the assertion there is that there's a difference between um, human beings, you know, living living within a plant world or living within an animal world and killing an animal and then using it in various ways to satisfy their needs and then just moving on um, once their their needs are satisfied and the animal or the plant is used completely. Because that remains part of the continuous unfolding. If you only do it every now and then, if you don't sort of turn it into a mass productive thing, if you don't turn it into a machinic or mechanical thing, you remain within the world as it was, as the continuous unfolding. There's two things there before you move on that I want to touch on that I'm really interested in. Um, sure. Because you're you're making that distinction and I appreciate it a lot. Uh, I wrote two things down. Part of it, that reminds me, are you, have, I'm assuming you've read Ishmael? Yes. Okay, that reminds me kind of like, you know, you know, you may compete, but you cannot wage war. That notion mm-hmm. that that Ishmael talks about, and then it's talked about in Story of B, is there's a fundamental difference between two animals or two species competing, and then another species denying the other one access to whatever. 
Absolutely. Like that sounds Absolutely. very familiar to me. Absolutely. It's the it's the difference between killing a concrete animal that is in front of you and that in principle has the ability to kill you versus uh, the abstract slaughter that's happening in slaughterhouses far away mm -hmm. because what's ha what's being slaughtered in the slaughterhouse is already dead by the time that the animals get there they mm -hmm. they they are already and this this is a sort of you can you can sort of phrase this with adorno you can say that the animal has been falsified before it is dead okay yeah and so how does that you know, and we don't have to get too into this if we don't want to, but we've, you know, we've plat we've platformed recently a couple of, um, like, nihilist vegans, and I wonder how they would respond to something like that. So do you think that, can I ask, are you, do you have opinions on political veganism, anarcho-veganism, that might relate to that critique? That's a, that's an interesting question, yeah, I've, I've sort of idly asked myself that a few times. I'm not a, I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan myself. Um, and I know that there's a bit of a, a bit of a discourse um, sort of within primitivism in particular about, you know, human abilities and, and the effects of eating meat on that. And I don't really have an opinion on that myself um, all that much. But um, it's to me, I don't think that this critique is exclusively about animals because the plant, the plants that we harvest um, you know, in, in agriculture, whether industrial or non-industrial, those plants are also falsified before we kill them. Because mm -hmm. again, we're, we're not killing, or, I mean, killing, you know, whatever phrase you want to use, but we're not sort of, we're not sort of reaping um, individual, um, I don't know, uh, corn plants or what have you, but we're, yeah. we're reaping mass, mass produced identical plants. That are that are just as mass produced and just as identical as um, you know cows or pigs or what have you once they once they go to the slaughter. So I wouldn't say that there's a difference here for me between animals and plants when it comes to that. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I was just I'm really interested because I could see that supporting both a I guess what we could call a temporary veganism because I have some primitivist vegan friends who admit you know what is happening now is not the same as what indigenous people or other uh, nomadic hunting groups have done in the past and do today, right? It's fundamentally yeah. just not the same thing. And they admit like under a, you know, within a world in which that's not needed or lifestyle that's not needed, they wouldn't be vegan because it's different. It's a different relationship. But then other vegans, you know, they, they believe, no, it's fundamentally the same thing. Or as, as Flowerbomb said in our episode recently, that you can't be anarchist without being vegan. Yeah, is, and that's a you know, yeah. No, go that's on. A, that's a that's definitely a position that I respect, and certainly, certainly, I think that part of a commitment to a variety of anarchism, sort of in general, is a part of a commitment to reducing suffering, um, mm -hmm. or if you want to phrase it even more generally, you could say reducing entropy. Um, but then the problem the problem becomes for me anyway. The problem becomes that that I tend to sort of draw a line between um, individual, maybe not choice, because no one really has a choice these days anymore, but individual morality um, on the one hand and the sort of um, structural um, presuppositions of that individual morality. Mm -hmm. um, and this, is, this, I think, you, you, you phrase 
very well when you said that indig what indigenous folks do, not all of them, but what indigenous folks in general sort of do um, with animals um, and what a lot of rewilders try to do with animals, with plants rather than um, above the, over their heads is that they sort of try to try to remain within those cycles that I talked about. And they try to sort of remain within the choices where you're facing one specific instance of the continuous unfolding, where you're, where you're facing one specific animal or one specific plant here and now, and you yourself are also here and now. Whereas, you know, I live in, in, a, Europe, in a Western European city, so most of my meat uh, and most of my most of the plants that I eat are not from a place that I personally have ever seen, nor have I ever interacted with any of them. They'd arrive in plastic packaging and that's it. Right. And so this kind of connects back to what you're talking about, that before it becomes language or linguistic, it's what was the phrase you used? Uh, crap. Uh, Just gestural. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, it's gestural in, in the um, in the two books. I call it iteration. Yes. Um, there's this there's this sort of general my my the reason why I'm introducing that term is that I think that the movement that I described sort of provisionally as a movement from earth before animals to earth with animals and then earth with animals to earth with human beings I don't think that that's entirely accurate because that sort of says plants good animals good humans bad Right. And that's not what I'm trying to. I mean, I have sympathies for the anti-humanist position. Don't get me wrong. Um, uh, but it, I wouldn't necessarily say that humans bad is is entirely accurate. I think that there is a development sort of in, in the history of of the planet as a whole, in the history of the continuous unfolding, which sadly has moved over the last 25,000 years, has moved to an ever more solidified um displacement of the world from what it was um and of human beings from the circumstances in which they used to live um so if we say that and this is what this is the primitivist angle um of the critique right if we if we were to say that there was a time when presumably human beings according to much of the evidence um by and large were living within those cycles and we're living within the continuous unfolding human beings have moved out of that mm -hmm. gradually at first and then over the last 200 years of course entirely explosively and the way that this has happened is that something has overdetermined the gestures of human beings and has pushed them toward ever further toward repeating themselves and becoming abstract rather than iterating themselves and remaining concrete. This idea of moving out of the continuous unfolding, you know, and that kind of connects with Zerzan's idea, in my mind, what I'm seeing here is, you know, Zerzan's idea of the ritual as like masking the alienation and separation we're beginning to experience early on with whatever is happening with the development of the symbolic and human supremacy, or even with this idea of like, when civilization you know, obviously civilization, and I, this is a whole conversation itself, is that civilization is natural, right? Like, it's not like it's divinely inspired by something or spawned by something outside of the the known universe, right? It is natural, but it is, it separates itself. It's this weird logic of 
it is unnatural because it sees itself as not natural, right? It sees mm -hmm. itself as separate, meaning, and you'd have a concrete way of seeing it is it's outside of this cycle, right? It's not outside mm -hmm. of nature. It's outside of the cycle, which is still natural, but it doesn't mean it's sustainable or right or whatever term you want to use. Exactly. And this, this, I think, is the main reason why I was trying to introduce iteration and repetition, because the talk about natural versus unnatural or even primitive versus civilized, I think really gets us into a lot of pitfalls that we can avoid if we use the, oh, I mean, I'm just proposing this, obviously, I'm not saying that my terminology uses every problem ever, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, if we if we were to sort of look at the, look at things in, in the way that this iteration, repetition, the Ixis thing that I'm trying to introduce um, works out, I think we can, we can phrase the, a, a critique that is very similar but helps us sort of past some of the questionable, more questionable aspects of primitive versus non-primitive or natural versus non-natural, not least the, the, the difficulties of defining what exactly that is. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, this requires that we know what we mean when we say iteration and, and repetition. Um, and so maybe if, if you don't mind, um, I can sort of go into that. Yeah, right before we do, right before the repetition, that was next on my notes, repetition and iteration. But right before that, I'm kind of diagramming kind of what you're talking about here with the relationship between the gestural, the linguistic or the language, and then the act. Is this uh -huh. a positive feedback loop, for the lack of a better word? Is it, it, is it its own continuous unfolding, the relationship between the gesture, the language, and the act of, of what's got in us here? So this idea of we do this thing or we we think this thing and then we we speak about it and then that speaking about it reinforces the act almost is there like some kind of feedback between these different aspects definitely i would definitely say that there is feedback and that's that's where breaking the alphabet comes in i don't think that this is part of the continuous unfolding mm -hmm. um because it is positing itself against the continuous unfolding, it's outside okay. or it's attempting, as you, as you said, civilization, to use the older terminology, civilization is unnatural because it views itself as unnatural. Or the way I would phrase it is, is it, it, it gestures pretend that it is unnatural. It tries to sever the ties to what it came from. Okay, um, yeah, that makes sense. But you're absolutely right. It is a positive feedback loop. And the reason why breaking the alphabet introduces the alphabet as a specific instance of this um, is that with writing, with writing and the alphabet in particular, civilizations drive to sever the ties to the continuous unfolding from whence it came, become conscious. And that means that they can be changed. So um, if we look at the way that, if we say that human beings at the beginning prior to um, for lack of a better term, the symbolic revolution, I think, is the term that's being used sometimes. Yeah, the symbolic, the symbolic or the behavioral revolution. Yeah, this yeah. is when we begin to think, or we begin to have thought, obviously, already, but now our culture begins to shape itself around symbols or quote-unquote complex behavior. Yeah, that's right. And the, again, complexity, again, you're, you're, you're putting the quotation marks in the right spot there. Complexity is another one of those terms that I don't really think gets anyone anywhere, other than, of course, those that get paid to use it. Um, right. 
but but um yeah so if we if we are to say and i think the primitivist angle does say that if we are to say that there is a state prior to uh, lowercase s state prior to um the symbolic revolution prior to the primacy of the symbolic where human gestures were within the continuous unfolding where we were facing each other as concrete beings rather than abstract ones so i was facing you as you rather than as a human being or a person or a passport holding bank account owning citizen um uh if we are to say that human beings started out like that then it is possible that there are human gestures that are part of the continuous unfolding. And there's some point where those gestures over a very long period of time, and I think John is talking about this um, in, in some of his pieces, over a very long period of time, some of these gestures became autonomous and became gestures unto themselves, right? And that's where shamanism comes in, and that's where the symbolic takeoffs come in. And that ultimately is where language starts, um, because you, you end up having um, a sort of, a set of gestures that become ritualistic, a set of gestures that become more and more repetitive in and of themselves. And as mm -hmm. they become more repetitive, they become self-referential. And the moment that they become self-referential, they become that. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting. Like, and again, like I'm super interested and I have a, I'm reading this book called Inside the Neolithic Mind. And like it kind of talks about what you're you're discussing the continuous unfolding and its relationship to the world. And that possibly, like, the auroch was domesticated, not because there was some, you know, you get into, like, the, te what is it, the theological argument of it was domesticated because it helped them. Like, okay, like, that doesn't really work as an argument, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, why did they do it? It actually might have been this, like, ritualistic thing that, you know, perhaps the shamans or whatever term you want to use, seers, special, uh, ritualistic specialists makes it really clear what they are might have been doing it to show their power over the spirit world or part of the spirit world and then that led to the domestication through herding and it's just like this interesting it's like sure like interacting with animals in this way may not be bad but then where does it lead and then it becomes mm -hmm. autonomous from the original intent right and it's yeah. really interesting how you know and that i i'm not a deleuze or datari specialist i'm a fucking moron when it comes to that kind of stuff but it kind of reminds me of the territorialization deterritorialization uh moderately from my understanding of it anyways yeah i think i think that goes in the right in the same direction i've never really read deleuze and Guattari very closely to be honest with you but um yeah this whole nomadic war machine thing i i would say that it probably goes in the same direction mm -hmm. um but I, I do think that if we look at this sort of in a in a historical perspective as opposed to an abstract perspective, you know, in a sort of philosophical way or whatever you want to you want to label Deleuze and Guattari's work, if you look at this historically, the development of language is an effect of the development of increased repetition, right? If we are to if we say that there is a gest a solidification of gestures prior to them becoming self-referential and thereby becoming ultimately becoming language, then what we can say is that there is a way in which human beings obviously always kind of do the same stuff every day, right? So if we if we just go back 500,000 years, you would still have people waking up and you would still have people sort of, you know, going to the bathroom and taking care of whatever it is that you take care of in the morning. And then you would still sort of kind of 
follow the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of the days and, and that sort of thing. So there's there's a way in which human beings are always kind of repetitive and animal behavior is always kind of repetitive. Plant growth is always kind of repetitive, but it mm-hmm. is never fully repetitive. It's never institutionalized. It's never solidified in that yeah. way. And that's where the difference is between iteration and repetition. Iteration is always there. And to a to a certain extent, that means that repetition is always there because repetition is a part of iteration. But iteration is not just repetition. It also has this other element of creativity, of spontaneity, of change, um, of whim, right? This sort of egoistic whim where if I don't want to do something, I just don't do it, end off. Um, mm. And it is only when gestures solidify, when they become ritualized, that this spontaneous element is being pushed back, that this spontaneous element is being pushed further into the background in order to benefit those who are presiding over the implementation of the ritual, deviations from the ritual increasingly get labeled as aberrations. And then you have the development of morals, which then becomes co-originary with the development of language. So morality, language, um, all of those things, civilized behavior, or even just sort of the overdetermination of behavior by so-called rules and regulations and what have you, that's all caught up in that original transfer or in that original transition from kind of repetitive so iteration you know there's always a way of of doing things in a different way always a a way of breaking off from the main group or forming your own or, or doing whatever the hell you want versus repetitive and that's kind of the threshold um that that i see here the threshold the main threat and i think that's again that's the threshold that john is talking about a lot the threshold goes from a, a sort of the hunter-gatherer behavior, which is freer than ours in the sense that they have sort of repetitions in their gestures, but they're not necessarily enforced. Uh, there's always an element of spontaneity left. And then as, you know, as language develops and as rituals become more and more um, entrenched and implemented, that's when the um, the iterative side, the side of spontaneity, disappears and gives way to ever purer repetition. And that ever purer repetition, then, as you said, it's it's a feedback loop. That ever purer repetition then feeds on itself, and it starts to develop. You know, the earliest sort of what what folks call cradles of civilization. You know, it starts developing um, administrative systems. It starts developing territories. It starts developing pyramids you know it starts building nation states it starts creating people who write stuff and ultimately it ends up with everyone being trapped as we are now so is it fair to say iteration and i'm going to use the term you use iteration is a check or a balance or perhaps a a moderate negation of this empire of repetition which i assume is kind of that that it you're talking about is the supremacy of repetition, right? This, mm-hmm. as we were talking about, the solidification of repetition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, empire of repetition is sort of a shorthand that I use in in place of civilization, because mm-hmm. again, I, I think that the civilization term has a has a, a fair few problems, um, yeah. and it's it's definitely being used too indiscriminately. Um, mm-hmm. So I I kind of I try to replace it with empire of repetition, by which I mean that every aspect of our lives 
at least in at least as far as and certainly as far as mine is concerned, um, every aspect of most people's lives today is either subject to repetitive, narrowly prescribed, precisely implemented gestures that I cannot deviate from without punishment, um, or people that aren't living directly in the heart of the empire of repetition are sort of pushed to the margins. You yourself have, have written about this, the unequal development of this sort of thing. Um, are pushed to more iterative margins, but they are pushed to more iterative margins in the negative sense that they don't, that they just don't get the, you know, I mean, there's undeniable advantages to being in the heart of the beast, so to speak. Um, and those advantages, people are just not privy to. Um, so, but the reason they're not privy to them is that the empire of repetition doesn't use them, so it discards them. So either way, you're either inside or you're outside so to speak. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously lots of shades of gray there, but you're either inside or you're outside. But either way, your being outside is just as uh, enforced by the repetition of the empire of repetition as being inside is. Yeah, would you say then, because again, I'm taking notes here. So empire repetition is this, as you say, the aspect of many people's lives in which you are put onto this track, right? This narrowly defined realm of gesture. That idea reminds me of the concept, and Julian Lehner and I just talked about this, uh, how I have historically used the term, or leftists and others have used the term authoritarianism. He prefers the term totalitarianism, um, because it, it, it authoritarianism kind of implies this implied leader is the problem. It's, oh, if we just replace the leader or some of the leaders, it'd be better, as opposed to the totality of the systems that are in place, right? That check you, that keep you on that track, right? Is that fair to say that it's synonymous or another term you could use for empire, empire repetition is totalitarianism? I would say the totalitarianism is definitely right, sort of from a structural perspective. And I totally agree. The, the problem is not individual people um, that are benefiting from this, but rather the omnipotence, so to speak, or the omnipresence of this repetitive structure. And in that sense, I think totalitarianism is um, is a good term to use. Um, my own background in terms of the grad school thing, my grad school background is in political science, though. So that's why I didn't use totalitarianism, because it has, in political science, it has this very, very specific meaning mm. um, where there is actually a single person at the center who benefits from this. And ironically, this is why I used authoritarianism, because from yeah, at least as far as I, I remember, in political science, it means the opposite. Authoritarianism means there isn't a spider in the middle of the web. Yeah, that's interesting how the, the and I, I took a lot of, I was, I was almost a poli-sci minor with how many classes I took in community college. Um, nice. But yeah, it's interesting that the discourse that's used there, and that's why I used it, because I had the same impression, but then I move into political spaces, and they use it differently. Mm -hmm. Like, authoritarian's like, oh, the system's authoritarian, it's because this, this, and that. It's like, when they, you, you might even identify some structural issues, but not all of them, right? Yeah. As opposed yeah. to the, you know, even in Bob Black's The Abolition of Work, which I just, I just reread this morning, um, nice. is he talks about like in the workplace, it's the camera, it's the bell, it's the snitch, right? It's all yep. those different things that come together that make it unbearable. It's not just the boss. The boss is hardly the fucking problem. Yeah, right. Absolutely. The foreman gives you more orders than the boss ever will. 
Right. Exactly. Or even like, oh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, look at the Soviet Union where there's no boss, right? But there sure is uh, uh, the foreman, right? Or the manager of the facility. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't produce enough. You don't, you don't stay in line, right? You don't appeal. Like Lenin, the irony is, you know, people of the Marxist persuasion, some Marxist persuasions love Lenin, but he worshipped Fordism. Mm -hmm. right which is i mean that's not an accident right if you know anything about him um but yeah. yeah that was just that was just the thought that i had so with the empire of repetition uh what are what is the relationship between this empire of repetition and your criticism of language why do you choose language but for my my understanding is that on page two of your of your book, uh, Plant Anarchy, if you're familiar with said book, uh, you say the foremost manifestation of iteration is writing. Exploring writing gives us a first grasp on iteration and how the empire of repetition works through it. So can you elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, that's that's um, that's kind of the, the it goes back to the feedback loops that we were talking about earlier. And I think that's kind of the, the main angle for breaking the alphabet as well is that there is a historical point if we if we sort of accept that there's a historical point where gestures solidify and become self-referential and that's the origin of language but that is not the origin of writing um in the conventional sense right there's a I, I don't know how many years it is and i'm pretty sure there's new evidence around the corner every day but if you want to say that there's i don't know about 20,000 years or so historically between the emergence of spoken language and the emergence of written language. Um, from an empirical perspective, that would mean that writing is another solidification of something that happens within spoken language, just as spoken language is another solidification of something that happens within human gestures in general. And human gestures are another solidification of animal gestures and so on and so forth. Mm. My... The reason why I'm talking about writing, though, is that writing, in order to be the latest incarnation of speech, which is the latest incarnation of gestures and so on and so forth, in order for that to be the case, the spoken speech has to already contain something that is closely akin to writing, because otherwise writing couldn't have developed out of it, just mm -hmm. as speech couldn't have developed out of gestures if there wasn't something within gestures that would eventually allow a speech to emerge. When you say something in it, do you mean like some type of inner logic or or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Inner logic, yeah. Inner logic is probably the best term for it, absolutely. And okay. so the question then is, so if you if you ask the question of why did human beings start writing things down, of course there's the empirical answer, which says, you know, they started writing things down because there were overworked bureaucrats somewhere in the ziggurat that had to, that just couldn't remember how many sheep there were. And so they started writing down how many sheep they had, or there were bureaucrats in Egypt somewhere that had to figure out how many people to enslave in order to get to building the pyramids. And they couldn't remember all of them. So they just started writing them down. That's the empirical answer. But I find that hardly explains um, why I mean, that's another theological argument they needed writing because writing was good right exactly. that doesn't that's okay you're arguing 
the you're arguing from the outcome backwards. They weren't yeah. thinking. I'm I'm really doubt that's what was happening because I think people have this conception that human history is driven by intent when it's the mm-hmm. opposite. It is not mm-hmm. driven by intent. Yeah, like in a moment, someone might be like, "I want to invent this thing," and they'll invent it, right? But there's a larger context that predates that. Right. That how did they get to that point where that thing was necessary to create or they pr- even produced the idea for them to create it? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the question then becomes, what is the larger structural principle that allows writing to emerge? And that larger mm-hmm. structural principle is that speech is writing that doesn't know that it is writing. Just okay. like gestures are speech that doesn't know that it is speech. And therefore, gestures are also writing that doesn't know that it is writing. We have been writing from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so naturally, this requires that you, I say naturally, um, turn of phrase, really unfitting term of phrase here. Uh, necessarily, I suppose, this means that the structural way in which writing works is the structural way in which speech works, and to a certain extent, also the structural way in which gestures work. And this is where we come back to the whole iteration versus repetition thing. Because speech, more so than written language, and less so than gestures, is iteration. We use the same terms over time, the same words over time. Obviously, they change uh, you know, as the generations pass by, but by and large, a language, once it sort of emerged, once it sort of um, solidifies as a language, uses the same words to refer to the same things over and over and over in different contexts, in different ways, in different articulations by different speakers. But the words themselves fulfill the same function over and over and over, regardless of the content. Hmm. So real quick, one more time, you said that I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. Written mm-hmm. is more so than spoken, but less so than. I'm sorry, just what was that point you were making again? How did you express that? Oh, no, uh, it's spoken is, sorry, written. Okay, you got me there. Um, written, <laughs> it, written is more repetitive than spoken, and spoken is more repetitive than gestures. Okay. But all three of them are on the same spectrum of iteration. Which is okay. to say, all, all three of them are sort of repetitive, right? The, the gestures that you make with your body tend to kind of repeat themselves, but very imprecisely. You know, like you would be, uh, you would be pointing at something, but you can point at things in very different ways, making very different uh, gestures with your body, um, whether it's an index finger or the whole hand, or you can nod toward it, or you can sort of push your hip toward it and that sort of stuff. All of those are pointing at something, but it's done in very, very different ways. And so you have this sort of general kind of repetition within gestures, but ultimately it's all our individual bodies expressing themselves individually. Okay, that that makes more sense. All right. And then as we move from gestures to speech, to the spoken word, Um, The same thing kind of applies in that every one of us wears their language differently, like pieces of clothing. Every one of us articulates things differently. Every one of us, you know, uses different contortions within language, uses different registers, different idiolects, sociolects, dialects, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, 
the fundamental gestures that are made by individual words always kind of remain the same. So yeah. if I if I use the word tree, I will always be referring to a tree because if I don't, I get punished. And I get punished either by being declared insane if I refer to a car as a tree too many times in public, or people will just laugh at me and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. And so speech is the same thing as gestures, but more solidified, more repetitive. So we're still within iteration in that there is still an, a way for individual human beings to speak differently, to, to use their spoken language differently. And we are still, as we speak with one another, we're still addressing each other as, uh, as individuals. We're still addressing each other as concrete individuals that we're facing in our face-to-face -face communication. Historically speaking, that's where speech originated. Um, and we're going to have to hold that thought because the, uh, the that thought about face-to-face -face communication, because of course, when I say speech, I'm distinguishing here between face-to-face -face speech, which is historically first, and the kind of speech that we're currently engaging in where I'm talking at my fault, which that is really my, not That was going to be my next question too, was, well, what is there a substantial difference between those two things? Yeah, absolutely, because talking at my phone is writing. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I'm saying this is that when you look at this, the transition from gestures to speech that I just sort of sketched there, or that we've just sort of sketched there, the same transition happens again in that speech solidifies to writing, it becomes more repetitive. Writing mm -hmm. the word tree refers to the tree again, in the same way that speech refers to the tree and presumably also to a certain extent in the same way that my pointing at the tree points out the tree. But when I write the word tree, I am not writing, excuse me, I'm not writing about this individual tree, this specific tree. I am writing simply about the word tree. The self-referentiality has completely closed up and writing is removed from the, the world where the tree lives and it has formed its own world. Hmm. Well, the you, problem you just you said I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but you Notice said that that spoken word is writing, but it doesn't know it is. But mm -hmm. then you said over the phone, speaking to your phone, it is writing. Is face-to-face mm -hmm. language also writing, or is it in, in this way you're talking about a spectrum, or is it writing but just less so when it's face-to-face? -face? Does that make sense? That's exactly exactly that. Yeah, it's all on the same iterative iterative spectrum, in that it, in that there is a bit of repetition in gestures. There's more repetition in in face to face spoken word. Mm -hmm. There's yet more repetition in writing, and then you have the spoken word sort of collapsing in on itself and becoming repetitive and abstract in the same way that writing is, where we are now sort of kind of talking to one another, but also not talking to one another. It's a sort mm -hmm. of a fake fake version of speech implemented within writing, because what we're really doing here is we're not speaking to one another, but each of us is producing zeros and ones that are being exchanged by the servers that our phones are the clients to, or my phone is the client to, your device is the client to. And really what we're doing here is we're just creating these zeros and ones that are going to be consumed by someone at some point. So what we're really doing here is writing. Mm. And so I'm curious, would you say that, let's say I'm, 
I'm live streaming on YouTube or Facebook. Is that even more than what we're doing here? Well, maybe even with this, because this is technically a social media platform. It's different than if I'm like calling on the phone, maybe. Um, but maybe the more high tech it gets, because there's more and more layers of code, meaning more and more language, more and more lines of a specific like digital language, uh, which is kind of like your point later in the book. Not really, but it reminds me of your you know, overcoming the terrain machine. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just interesting that it's almost, or if I'm making a speech to a classroom, right, as a teacher or as a student, but then if I go and make a political speech to a crowd, right, that's propaganda, that it's also put on TV, right, and I'm doing a performance, how many more, like, the just not even, yeah, you have the the, the spectrum of gestures and and spoken word and, and written word, but then even within spoken word itself, how many layers or spectrums there are of that. You know, how many points on the spectrum just of spoken word, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think the more of these layers, what what the way that I describe these layers is that these are layers of writing within speech. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean when I say that speech is speech that doesn't know that it's writing. It implements the exact same thing that writing does, but less so to a lesser extent, to a lesser degree, if it is face to face communication. But if it is the kind of thing that we're doing now, or if it is a, a, a social media stream, or if it is a political speech, it becomes more and more abstract. There's more and more layers of purely repetitive, uh, pure, you know, purely repetitive usage of the words that are being used. And this then removes them from their context. It makes them self more and more self-referential and ultimately just removes them from the continuous unfolding altogether. And that's where the empire of repetition is when it becomes completely institutionalized and you end up with processes like the in plant anarchy i talk about legal subsumption when the law closes in over something it's kind of the same way as when a politician gives a speech um or you know the i mean i, I you know i don't want to you know don't want to necessarily offend you in any way but there's you know there's a similarity between this to what teachers do as well Oh, yeah, no. Um, people shit on teachers, and I'm totally with it, you know? I, I'm not going to, okay, because a lot of people are curious. I became a teacher because I was going to be an English major because I didn't know what I was doing. And the university professor or the counselor said, what are you going to do with that? I was like, I don't know. He said, we'll put you in English ed and we'll see what happens. And then I just never <laughs> left. Um, I did not desire to be a teacher. I just did not know what the fuck else I was going to do. <laughs> you know what? That's um, fair. That's yeah. Fair. You know, I really, you know, and it's also one of those year. I finished my first year. Yeah. Pretty quickly realized I don't want to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the low pay uh, being just part of that. Um, so we are almost at an hour and there's so many things I wanted to touch on. So maybe we could move through some of these other points fairly quickly. Um, so, uh, yeah, sure. so your idea of the spoken word connects late early on in your book to this idea of like transparency um, and particularly with this idea of like the social anarchist, that the implication of what it means to have a non-authoritarian society or non-totalitarian, depending on who you ask society mm -hmm. is you, it would demand a level of transparency, a level of vulnerability. What do you, I read that. And at first I didn't really get, it. I was like, well, the anarchists aren't saying that, but then I, I I read that, and then I went back and I looked and I thought about Bakunin's catechism or Kropotkin's field factories and workshops or what have you. And I was like, but it's implied; it is implied. 
there is a level of implication of what this means. So can you kind of summarize what your point is with this idea of transparency and like a critique of the social anarchist movement? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the idea there is that there's a, the way that we have made the, we have built up the argument so far is that we have said that writing is contained within speech. And therefore, it wouldn't be possible to just say, oh, you know, if we just stop writing, everything will be fine, right? So like the, the, the one of the things that I really want to make very, one of the arguments I want to make very clearly in both books is that you, the, if you are critiquing um, repetition or the empire of repetition, you're not doing what is solely a critique of written language but also a critique of the of the principle of writing that's inherent to spoken language. And one of the implicit things, as you said, one of the implicit things that comes out when you read sort of what's commonly called classical anarchism um, is that there is a sort of insistence that a, whether it's implicit or, or explicit, um, but there's definitely an insistence on the part of these sort of texts that claims that if we are to build up a society, a free society, or the good society, the anarchist society, whatever we want to call it, there has to be a level of transparency that is not possible in writing. It is only possible in speech. And the reason why is that speech alone is capable of being done face-to-face -face without the possibility of falsifying anything. Um, so it's really an argument for more authenticity within speech. Um, and so, but when you look at the way that this works out, structurally, this means that there is the assumption that if you speak face-to-face, -face, that you can't lie, that face-to-face -face speech has to be more authentic than written speech, that there is something within face-to-face -face speech that is impervious to being fake, impervious to being unauthentic, impervious to being a lie. And so it's really what I'm trying to do with this chapter is I'm trying to show that this assumption just doesn't work, that there is writing within speech, that speech is always impure, and that there is no way in which you could say, oh, you know, if we just stop writing or if we stop delegation, if we stop, um, you know, sending people to higher up workers' councils or whatever the specific version of this is, if we stop represent representation, then everything will be fine. If we only come together and do face-to-face -face speech all the time, everything will be fine. And that is an assumption that I that I see is implicit to a lot of the canonical, uh, the classical texts. And I just think that that's wrong because writing is inherent to speech. And so we need to look to a solution that takes into account that when we speak, we really write. And when we, when we iterate, we're really already part of the empire of repetition. There is... The way to sort of break free from this is not by simply saying that, okay, we're going to stop circulating written words and instead just going to start talking face to face and then everything else will sort of fall into place. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when I read that too, you know, as a primitivist, I was kind of like, well, no, I mean, well, right, well, you know, a critique of the symbolic, well, speaking is inherently mediated. It's less mediated than writing, not to say that language is good you know what i mean it gets interesting like because my primitivist brain was like trying to wrap around that because i was like mm -hmm. i don't disagree but i kind of disagree so mm -hmm. you touch on it later is that primitivists 
theoretically don't make the same argument. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Because I'm sure some we, some people that don't fully understand primitivism are going to say, well, no, primitivists argue that. Or what is your, inter- you use the term primitive anarchy. What is your interpretation of the primitive anarchy's critique of, of repetition, of the empire of repetition or repetition generally? That's the thing, right? The primitive anarchy, to me, knows that there is writing inherent in speech and that there is repetition inherent in iteration. And therefore, primitive anarchy goes beyond uh, rejections of writing, beyond rejections of the written word, by, on the one hand, by saying that, you know, the more radical versions of it, by saying that basically we need to get rid of both. Uh, spoken language is just as much part of the symbolic unfolding or the symbolic, uh, you know, symbolic culture as is writing. So in this first way, primitivism knows that um, we need to go beyond making this particular distinction and simply uh, simply criticize both uh, parts of this, where speech is just as alien or can be just as alienating as the written word. And on the other hand, Primitive anarchy, to me, knows and takes seriously that by attacking writing, by attacking alphabetic writing the way it's implemented now with the Latin alphabet, we are also attacking speech. And so yeah. we are, we're setting ourselves onto a, a course where we can go from the attack on the specific way of writing that we are doing now, which is what breaking the alphabet does, to an attack on the more generalized way of writing that is inherent in speech. And we can reduce that back to the point where gestures with occasional spoken words to be sure, but gestures are what sort of allows us to communicate with one another. Okay. So one of the last points we can touch on, and it obviously deeply relates to what we just talked about, is your idea of the anti-alphabet. You know, I just, you know, it's funny if you just switch uh, kind of just choose a random page. I chose page 93, uh, the beginning of uh, part six, Sterner's Final Compromise. You know, it's just, I looked at him like, huh, some hieroglyphics. That's weird. Just in the, in the middle of this Latin Latin alphabet book, there's some hieroglyphics in here. Um, what is the anti-alphabet and what is its purpose? Yeah, it's in, uh, it, the chapter is, is partly written in it. Um, the anti-alphabet is my attempt to draw on the resources that are contained within the Latin alphabet that we all in the Western world currently use, and to use those in order to make the Latin alphabet self-destruct. Um, so just like, you know, it's it's kind of the same of, as what we were talking about. You can't just say, okay, writing bad, speech good. So you can't say Latin alphabet bad, previous alphabets good, right? Um, yeah. Or Latin al- or alphabet bad, non-alphabetic writing good, right? Um, the the what needs to happen, I think, and this is where this is sort of, I, I want I usually call this my practical suggestion. I don't know how practical it really is, but um, the sort of the sort of practical thing that that I want to get at with the anti-alphabet is that the Latin alphabet is at the very end of a long line of development where alphabets are excuse me, where written symbols are more and more abstract and therefore implement the same movement away from gestures to speech to writing, they do that again within writing, where we go from uh, symbols that are very close to the life world of those that use them, like the earliest hieroglyphs in, in archaic Egypt, 
to what we have now where the Latin alphabet has these abstract letters that overwrite everything and are capable of overwriting everything because they are so abstract, because they are so far removed from all possible things that they mean that they are, have this power of just overwriting everything as though they were some sort of magical thing. And ultimately, of course, the, the whole point of the alphabet is that it performs this particular magic. And so the idea is that the movement from hieroglyphs to the Latin alphabet implements the same movement that we uh, that we went through sort of collectively when we moved from speech to writing, where if you look at the very earliest hieroglyphs, they can they are very realistic representations of the animals that folks living in archaic Egypt were facing on a day-to-day -day basis. And very realistic depictions of the plants that they were facing on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I'm trying to do in, in the chapter that is, I think it's the chapter before, yeah, the chapter before that, the chisel and the elephants, which is about archaic Egypt. One of the things that I'm trying to do there is I'm trying to show that when the very earliest um, symbols were carved into stones, that people were still aware that these symbols were speaking to specific animals and were speaking to specific plants in much the same way that we have indigenous folks now that communicate with animals and plants through symbols. Um, and so these earliest hieroglyphs started out as this sort of type of direct face-to-face, -face, um, I guess, communicating or interfacing with the continuous unfolding that surrounded the folks that carved them into the stone. And it was mm -hmm. only then that the state apparatus that was also developing at the same time, that the state apparatus was taking them over and was working them into the solidification of its own internal mechanism. And so when hieroglyphs were appropriated, that's when, or, or when these earliest symbols were appropriated, that's when they became hieroglyphs and that's when they became an alphabet. And that alphabet then developed into other alphabets and the, the one alphabet that came out of this is our own. And so by trying to juxtapose our own alphabet with all of its predecessors, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to turn each of these letters that are sort of combined by all of these alphabets, I'm looking to turn them into, back into what they started out as, namely direct implementations of the animals and plants that people were surrounded by when they first started carving these kinds of symbols into stones. Interesting. So what would, is your intention for this anti-alphabet, is it a political project? Is it a personal project is it a hey here's what i'm doing use it if you want i guess like what is what is the point of it i guess or what is its use you've kind of given me the theory but what is its application right it's a it's really i i look at it as a tool uh next to other tools i mean obviously the there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which um anarchists these days are confronting um, you know, confronting civilization, confronting the state, confronting um, the empire of repetition. And I think that the vast majority of them are all equally valid. And so the, the anti-alphabet is attempting to, to, to be another tool in that particular toolbox. So for example, I had this, I had this idea that I, that I had in Fifth Estate, uh, an article called Burning Money. The idea was that the circulating these kinds of symbols, circulating these kinds of alphabets can ultimately sort of undermine um, the presence or the omnipresence of 
Latin letters on all of our screens and all of our um, all of our paper pieces of paper and what have you that we deal with on a daily basis. So um, we're looking at things like, or I'm looking right now. I'm I'm working on um, you know flyers and stickers that are sort of being distributed with this sort of thing, um, with this sort of writing. And the idea is that if people are using these sorts of these sorts of anti-alphabets, and of course I'm not saying that mine is the only one that can be created here, but if people are using these sorts of anti-alphabets, these can be used for communication between groups. Um, you know, they can even be used for this sort of clandestine stuff, you know, like old style, um, uh, old style ciphers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, pirate utopias, if you will. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, like it, it's got, it, the application is, the idea behind the application is that eventually I'm hoping that as more people start getting familiar with these sorts of these sorts of alternative ways of, of, of writing things, of sort of alternative ways of implementing the symbols that are at their disposal, that people will will see that the references that the Latin alphabet is used on are not the only way of referencing things, and that you can in fact live your life in such a way that you live it with the animals and the plants that surround you rather than against or above them, so to speak. Mm. And I remember he was in an interview, maybe it was Oak. I can't remember which Oak number, if it was, I don't think it was five. You had an interview in there in one of the Oaks when you mentioned th there should be a spoken element to this. If it's simply written, that would be ableist, right? I mm -hmm. think is a point that you made. I, am I making that up? Am I dumb? Nope, nope. That's I think that is definitely I don't know which oak it is either, but I, that's definitely a point that I made. Yeah. And and so I'm curious, would you I say I'm curious a lot. It's it's my favorite starting starting point to a question. Um, do you think because language obviously influences our thoughts, we think in language, right, mm -hmm. because we're symbolically oriented through the use of the anti alphabet. Could you imagine an alteration of thought or thought patterns? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's that was actually one of the things that I was talking to the that I was talking about um, with Mike at the Hilaritas podcast mm -hmm. um, a while back. That was one of the things that we were talking about because there's this sort of much like there's this assumption um, that there is a way to have untainted speech if you simply stop writing. There's also an assumption that you can have untainted thought, which exists independent of or outside of speech and writing. Um, and that sort of, you can, you can sort of, uh, sort of retreat into a, a type of thought that is, that is not affected by these mechanisms. But I don't think that that's true because as you said, I agree with you there that thought is ultimately structured like speech. And therefore, writing is also inherent to thought, much in the exact same way that it is inherent to speech. And so, if we, if we, if the anti-alphabet is used um, against the Latin alphabet, what you're also doing—excuse me—what you're also doing is you're getting rid of linear ways of writing. Um, if you look at the the that page that you referenced again um, with the hieroglyphs on it, none of those are going from left to right um, in the way that the the Latin alphabet is written. Um, and once you if you 
shed linear writing, if you get rid of linear writing, you also get rid of linear thought. You also get rid of linear speech. Um, and so you can you can use this sort of way of writing in a liberating way to get it to make it such that your thoughts are no longer arranged in the way that ours are trained to be arranged, where you go from cause to effect, from concrete to abstract, uh, that sort of thing. But rather, you're you're looking at a way of thinking that's more associative, possibly even more dreamlike, more like the the ways that um, James has recommended a wonderful book called The Mind in the Cave, um, which is about these early European cave paintings and what we can learn from the San people about how how the uh, how these paintings were made, and they use this sort of associative thought, um, this non-linear way of thinking in order to perceive the caves differently, in order to perceive their everyday lives differently, and in order to make it such that they were living half in our world, half in the material world, and half in this sort of other world that was beyond the stones, that was behind the stone membrane. That sounded familiar, uh, that book you're mentioning, and I just looked it up. That author is the co-author as well of Inside the Neolithic Mind, where they then talk about its influence on domestication and like all some really interesting things I was talking about earlier. Um, and I need to read the one you were just talking about, uh, The Mind in the Cave, because it develops how that might have looked both in like uh, Ireland, uh, Britain and those areas, as well as in like the Levant. And it's really interesting, those code developments. Really brilliant. From the, yeah, from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic. No, absolutely, yeah, that's it's a really brilliant book. And it, it I think it makes this really convincing case or to me in any case it was convincing i'm not an expert in any of this but it, it really makes this convincing case that other ways of thinking other than the linear one that that western humanity uses um that other ways of rationality are possible and i think that if we use the resources that are inherent in the latin alphabet because every alphabet that i that i invoke in the anti-alphabet development is a predecessor of the latin alphabet um, so these resources are inherent to the historical development of the Latin alphabet. And if you juxtapose them and if you look at the if you look at our own Latin letters in the same way that the earliest Egyptians looked at their hieroglyphs and through those hieroglyphs to or proto hieroglyphs and through those proto hieroglyphs to the animals, to the plants, it is possible to structure thought differently because thought is ultimately just speech and speech is ultimately writing. So if you change writing, you change speech. And if you change speech, you also change thought. Yeah. That's and so in some ways you're kind of de-symbolizing the word almost. Mm -hmm. Is that a is that a fair way to put it? You're trying to de-symbolize it? That's definitely a fair way of putting it. Yeah. I'm I I wouldn't say that I'm that I'm sort of in in the business of I think Steve uh, called me to task about this um, that I'm in the uh, in the business of language abolition only um, so mm -hmm. I'm I'm really I'm I, I wouldn't say that that's the sort of the only angle um, it's more of a of a you know rendering less repetitive so to speak and the first mm -hmm. step of rendering less repetitive is desymbolizing the written word. To then, which then desymbolizes the spoken word, desymbolizes thoughts, and I mean the the grand vision, of course, is is that this will this will be the thing that makes the mighty institutions crumble before our eyes. Whether it has that potential, I don't know. 
but that's kind of ultimately the the trajectory is where it's headed. Yeah, interesting. I know. I would. You know what I would love is for you to debate Chomsky and his idea that language is essential to humanity because we got some stardust in our brains or some stupid shit. I I am not. No, let's not do that. <laughs> are, are you sure? You you want to pass up that opportunity? <laughs> No, 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 no. Let's not let's not beat a dead horse. Nah. Yeah, or a dying horse, rather. Or a dying horse, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. So I guess we can begin to round it out here. So with the two, these two, well, the booklet, Breaking the Alphabet, and then the book, Plant Anarchy, where are these accessible? Because I know Little Black Cart is where we can get them, but obviously that announcement that they will cease working, essentially, in december of this year so when that happens what can what can people do to get your work yeah when when so they they are available at lbc uh until the end of december as you said um and then after that um and in general folks that are in europe um you know if if uh if you're listening if you're interested um folks that are in europe i would be more than happy to send you a copy um i have some of my own um and basically what's going to happen is there's there's one way in which LBC, I believe, are currently looking into hosting uh, some of their books somewhere else. So this there might be an opportunity, a sort of a more formal opportunity to get them after that. Um, but I will have a whole stash of them. Um, I will, I'm in the process of getting a whole stash of them. So if anybody wants them, just, you know, just let me know and then I can send them to you. Awesome. Yeah, we can get your contact info in the in the description uh, if that works mm -hmm. for you um, as well as what uh what writing projects are you associated with we've you've mentioned oak you've mentioned fifth of state and then of course i'm going to do my self-plug for plastic in utero you just wrote an essay titled it into the continuous unfolding uh which i think is really great and it touches on a lot of things we've touched on here uh, in specific to the continuous unfolding that cycle of processes you've talked about. But where else is your writing found and what ways can people support the work that you do? Yeah, thanks a lot, um, by the way, for for the um, plastic in utero thing. I'm really looking forward to reading to reading the rest of it. Um, well, most of most of the stuff that I've written in this vein that we just talked about is in the two books. Um, there's there's a, a, another essay in Oak uh, that goes in that direction that sort of tackles the whole time, uh, the effects of the anti-alphabet on how we perceive time. Um, but um, most, of, most of the other things, I have a list that's on my website. Uh, the website is called thinkcontinuum.eu, um, and we'll put that in the, um, in the uh, contact info as well. Um, and there's a, there's a list of my sort of more literary writings there, which sort of tease out a bunch of the aspects of, of where this is headed and also sort of, you know, some other projects that I've done over the years with, with all the various alphabets that have sort of engaged on the way to the anti-alphabet. All right. Very cool. Well, this has been the Uncivilized Project with Artemis with our guest, Sasha. We appreciate you listening.